0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello and
1: welcome to episode 840 with Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Marissa has so much wisdom when it comes to How we can make better friendships, why that matters at work and in life, and some real nice paradigm reshapers for me when it comes to friendships, relationships, deepening them. So I think you'll get a real kick out of this enriching conversation with Marissa. So you'll learn one, the three types of loneliness that we all experience. Two, why work friends are so critical to our well-being. And three, the six practices that help you make and keep friends. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to some of the items that we've referenced here, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP840. Now, here's a little bit about Marissa. Marissa is an enlightening psychologist, international speaker, and New York Times bestselling author who's known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their very lives. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland and authored the New York Times bestseller Platonic How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, the Telegraph, and Vice. She speaks on belonging in corporations, government agencies, nonprofits, and universities. For tips on friendship, you can check out her Instagram, which is Dr. Marissa G. Franco or visit her website, www.drmarisagfranco.com. That's M-A-R-I-S-A, if you were curious, where you can take a quiz to assess your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and reach out for speaking engagements. Big thanks to Marisa for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a 1 billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts: 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number 1 in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedincom awesome. That's linkedin.com/b e a w e s o m e, as in you are being awesome, be awesome to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Marissa. Marissa, welcome to How to Be
2: Awesome at Your Job. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, Marissa, I'm so excited to get into some wisdom about friends. But first, I got to hear, I understand you are a polyglot. Tell us, what languages do you speak and how did you get to learn them?
2: Yeah. I speak Italian because my dad's from Italy. So he sent me to live there for half of fifth grade. I Mm. speak Haitian Creole because I taught at a social work school in Haiti for two summers. And that's where my mom's from. And I speak some Spanish, still working on the Spanish thing.
1: Wow. So half of fifth grade is enough for you to to learn Italian for life?
2: Well, I then came back and took Italian in middle school for sixth, seventh and eighth grade and went back to study abroad in Florence.
1: Okay. There you go. Oh, that'll do it. It's funny. I've got a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old at home. And so we're thinking just how much and when is the, the ticket for language acquisition? And my wife is big on them knowing French because she studied abroad in France and, and, and knows some. So yeah, that's that story.
2: That's awesome. So valuable.
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly. Well, another thing that's valuable is friendship. How's that segue, Marissa? Mm,
2: Good job. Good job. (laughs) Thank you.
1: And I'd love it if maybe first, before we talk about the how of friendship, can you tell us why? Why are friends important? And maybe that question doesn't even need to be asked, but some might say, hey, you know what? Popularity contests are over. You know, I've got my family and my, my coworkers. We get along well enough. Isn't that enough, Marissa? what would you say?
2: Well, I would say that friends actually make your relationship with your relationship partner better. So research finds that if I make a friend, not only am I less depressed, my relationship partner's less depressed. If I have a woman who are friends with women, are more resilient to issues in their marriage when they have friends, when people are in conflict with their spouse, it basically alters their release of the stress hormone cortisol in problematic Mm. ways, unless they have quality connection outside the marriage. So basically, I think we, we've always needed an entire community to feel whole. And when we put all our eggs in one basket with one person, it harms us and it harms our relationship with that person. And there's, there's even three different dimensions of loneliness, which really reveal this. So there's, A form of loneliness called intimate loneliness, which is a desire for connection with people you feel really close to. But then there's also relational loneliness, which is a desire to connect with someone kind of as close to you as a friend. But then there's collective loneliness, which is this desire to be a part of a group of people that's working toward a common goal. And so you could experience any of these types of loneliness, which means you could have found your soulmate as a spouse, but still feel like you're lacking that larger community that's working towards a common goal, for example.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. Thank you. Being self-employed and and working from from home or an office by myself—that's a nice distinction for me in particular. Because, like, okay, well, hey, yeah, my wife is great. That's cool, and I got friends, and that's cool. But uh, yeah, sometimes it does feel lonely, even though I've got a great team across—you know—spread across the world, uh, doing their thing. We're in different spots, and yeah, you can feel that sometimes.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the other th- reason that we feel lonely when we're not around different types of people is because we have a restricted relationship with ourselves. Like each person brings out a different part of us. So, you know, when you're around the same people, the same person all the time, it's like I'm only experiencing certain sides of me. Like, you know, let's say I'm really into gardening and the couple of people that I interact with all the time, nobody's into that. That part of me begins to wither until I find someone to connect with who has that shared interest wherein we can talk with depth about that. I can bring out that side of me. And so the more that we embrace diversity of community, the more that we feel more full and more whole. And and there's also research that finds that the larger your social network, the more long you will live. And actually how large your social network is predicts how long you live even more so than your diet or how much you're exercising.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's intriguing. So... How large do I want to be?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of complexities to that question, Mm -hmm. right? Because obviously you want very quality connections. Quality is very important. So if it's like I'm having this large network and I don't feel quality connection or I'm having a, a, a network that's so large that it feels like I can't invest in one person, then that's not good. So there's a bit of a balancing act. But the other thing is that our desire for a larger social network tends to change throughout our life. So around 25 is when most of us have like the highest rates of highest number of friends. And that's because around that age, a lot of us are expanding our sense of identity. And again, friends help expose us to new things, new information, help us feel different sides of our own identity. But as people get older, they tend to want to to think about how much time they have left and spending it very intentionally with people that they feel deep quality connectedness with. So they tend to kind of prune their friendships and be very selective about who they hang out with. So I would say it also depends on your stage in life what you might be drawn to and what a good size in terms of, yeah, the, the amount of people that you keep in your inner circle.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And can you share any research associated with the value of, of friends for being more awesome at your job or friends at the workplace?
2: Absolutely. So interestingly, there's a study that looked at workplace fulfillment and the number one factor that predicted how fulfilled people were at work was their sense of relatedness, which is like their sense of connection with the people around them, how much they feel valued by the people around them. And that's like quite striking, right? Because it means that you could be doing a job that you really love, but if you don't feel like you have good relationships, your sense of fulfillment will not quite be there, that there's this factor outside of your work that you're doing that really is deterministic for your sense of happiness. And I think often when we're choosing careers, we're so focused on like, what exactly am I doing? And we're less focused on like the culture and whether people feel valued and whether people feel connected, even though it's, it's really, really important. And other research finds, for example, that lonely employees, they miss work, more work. They report having poorer performance. They report thinking about leaving their job more. And so when I do speaking engagements on connection and belonging at work, I talk about this phenomenon that I call the employee myth, which is the sense that we go to work and we are no longer human and we don't have these human needs and we'll just like clack away at our computer and our employee identity, it our whole human identity. And it's just not true. Like the same needs that we have outside of the workplace are the same human needs that we have within the workplace. And one of our greatest human needs is to feel connected to other people.
1: Hmm, That's good. Okay. So that's a nice, juicy why uh, I'd also love to hear thinking over the course of your career and researching friendship stuff, any particularly shocking or counterintuitive or extra fascinating discoveries you've made that really left an impression with you?
2: Yeah. So in general, our brain has this negativity bias, which means that we tend to remember negative information more than positive information. It registers more with us and that when we're making predictions, we tend to be inaccurate and often cynical because of our ability to remember this negative information. So what that means is that, for example, there's a study that finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how liked they are by each other. And the more self-critical you are, the more pronounced this liking gap is, the more likely you are to underestimate how much other people like you. And I think sometimes we think our critical thoughts are the truth when the study finds that they're really distorting the truth. And so one of, I think a really helpful note for people when it comes to making friends is to remember that people like you more than you're Mm. assuming people are probably a lot more open to you and open to your friendship and connection than you might think.
1: Yeah, that is nice. I am more charming than I think, perhaps statistically, if I'm the average (laughs) (laughs) and and not an egomaniac (laughs) or an an artist. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right. So then your book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. What's the the big idea or core thesis here?
2: The core thesis is that how we've connected has fundamentally shaped who we are. Our personalities are fundamentally a reflection of our experiences of connection or lack thereof, whether you are trusting, open, cynical, aggressive, guarded, like all of these things are predicated on your experiences of connection. Whereas who you are then affects how you connect. So it's not random how you connect with people. These people that have had a history of healthy relationships, they've developed a set of assumptions about the world that facilitate them continuing to make healthy relationships. And so those are what's called securely attached people. They have this history of healthy relationships. They go into new relationships, addressing the relationship in very healthy ways. Whereas those people who have relationships that are more difficult or unhealthy in the past, they might have internalized a set of assumptions about the world. Like people are always going to abandon you or you can't trust anybody, which then inhibit and impede their ability to continue to form relationships with people. So those are the insecurely attached people. And so my platonic is kind of about how can we all develop more secure attachment in our friendships? Because I want to say sometimes I I share this attachment information and people are like, well, you know, good for those people that had healthy relationships. Where does that leave me? And so I like to make sure I tell people like you can absolutely change your attachment style. The book is actually about how you could change your attachment style in relationships to friends. And all of us can learn to build those secure relationships with other people.
1: Okay. Now attachment style, that phrase is bringing me back to college psychology and talking about what went down with babies, is that what you mean by attachment style or or how are you? Could you give us the rundown of the maybe typology of attachment styles?
2: Yeah. So the babies are right. <laughs> the, the baby thing. So it's th- this idea that, you know, in your early relationships, how your parents interact with you or your caregivers created this internal sense of assumptions about how everybody interacts with you. And so if your parents were like overbearing and not responsive to your needs, like you pulled away and you needed alone time and they would bother you and not really respect your boundaries, you might have become anxiously attached, which means you always fear re- rejection and abandonment from other people because your parents weren't necessarily attuned to you and your needs and might've been hot and cold with their ability to give you love. Whereas if you are avoidantly attached, that means that you had parents that suppress all feeling, like encourage you to be strong and take care of it on your own, and encourage you to be hyper independent. And so you learn that if you try to be vulnerable with people, they will not be there for you. So you are someone who goes into your friendships unemotionally, and you tend to not put much effort into friendships because you don't trust people. So you don't you put low effort, low reward. Whereas the securely attached people, they had the good enough parent who was responsive to their needs, who tried to show them love and let them express emotions, and these securely attached kids, which are about fifty percent of us, but the rates of secure attachment have been going down. Oh, yeah, right. They go on to have these assumptions that people will love me, I'm worthy, my needs matter, other people's needs matter too, and so they go on to build healthy relationships. But you know, it's kind of more complicated than that. Like, there's. All of these intervening things that can happen that can alter your attachment style, like your relationship since your parents, whether you had one person outside of your household who made you feel really secure. So I say that because I'm like, you don't necessarily have to go home and, and blame your parents because it's, it's mm. quite complex how attachment styles develop.
1: Okay, I So those are the three primary flavors there. And so how do we know which of the three is predominant within us?
2: Yeah. Well, I do have a quiz in platonic, but I could tell you some of the attributes that we tend to see. So anxiously attached people, they tend to think their friends don't really like them. They tend to form friendships very quickly because again, they're afraid people will abandon them. So they want people to show their level of investment very quickly. They tend to overshare almost to test people. Well, you've abandoned me if you know all these things about me. They tend to yeah, be very comfortable with vulnerability. They tend to be very self-sacrificing in their relationships because they feel like, again, if I bring up my own needs, you're going to abandon me. Passive aggressive because they are they have that fear of abandonment. What I kind of describe them as is high effort, low reward. Like they're putting a lot of time and effort into their relationships. Their relationships are important to them, yet they aren't getting that same reward. There's the sense that their relationships are very fragile. And that's because anxiously attached people, again, They think people are going to abandon them. So they tend to think they're being rejected even when they're not. And so then they'll sort of pull away or act out, act aggressively, like not really respect people's boundaries as a way to kind of soothe their own fears of rejection. And then you have avoidantly attached people. They are not putting much effort into friendship. They are not initiating as many friendships. They're more likely to ghost on their friends. You, You could describe them as like loners or they might have a big group of friends, but it's very shallow. The other attachment styles are attracted to vulnerability. The avoidantly attached person is not sometimes put off by the vulnerability of other mm. people. They tend to focus a lot on work and less on relationships. So the avoidantly attached person is low effort, low reward. They're kind of taking themselves out of the game. You'll hear them say things like, I don't trust people, like people can't be trusted. That's their big issue. They, they think if I get too close to people, it's I'm just going to be harmed and hurt. So let me just keep my distance. And then you have securely attached people who I call the super friends. Research finds that secure attachment is related to initiating more friendships, your friendships being more sustainable. Securely attached people tend to address conflict, but in very healthy ways where it's not an attack. It's These are my needs. These are your needs. What do we do moving forward? They are comfortable with vulnerability, but they build it more gradually. They're giving towards their friends. They're loving towards their friends, but they don't sacrifice their own sense of self. Like if it's like, this is really depleting me, they'll always try to find that balance where I want to show up for my friends, but I also want to show up for myself at the same time. And so in some ways, securely attached people really humanize everyone they interact with. They allow everybody to kind of be an individual, whereas anxiously attached people, they're seeing rejection everywhere. They've imposing that template onto people. Avoidantly attached people, they're opposing the template that other people are not trustworthy. So for example, there's studies that find that if you try to be loving towards an avoidantly attached person, they will assume that it's because you want something out of them. Mm-hmm. And so secure attachment just like gives people the flexibility to tell their own stories because they don't have this this wound from the past that they're always ready to happen to them again.
1: And that's interesting. And as I think about my own experience, and we've got our own sort of emotional roller coaster highs and lows and moments of stress and sleep deprivation versus enthusiasm and openness. I think when I'm at my worst, <laughs> I, I just don't. And the thought of going to some event, for example, or, or joining some people at a social thing, I just, I think, yeah, I just don't expect the people I encounter there to be very interesting or fun does that fit into a category or am I a unique (laughs) special flower
2: (laughs) well I mean it could be attachment but that's also a a symptom of loneliness and I don't know if this applies to you or not because yeah you could you could tell me but I know that when we are lonely for example it's not just a feeling it alters how we perceive the world where we perceive social interactions as less enjoyable Because basically what happens when you're lonely, if you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, when you were lonely, you were isolated from your tribe, which kept you safe from dangers in the African savannah, right? So when we're lonely, our brain is like hypervigilant for signs of negativity. Like lonely people think they're being rejected when they're not. They report less compassion for humanity, liking their roommate less. And so when you're in a state of loneliness, fundamentally you want to connect, but you also are convinced that if you do connect, people might harm you or reject you. Like not physically, but just like reject you. So there's this conundrum that we have when we're lonely, where actually loneliness is also related to like wanting to withdraw from people.
1: Mm-hmm. So with these wounds, it sounds like a lot of them have to do with family, parenting, childhood stuff. Are there categories of wounds? I'm thinking about being dumped, for example. It hurts. What are some of the other big places where these wounds
2: could come from? I think our brains are really good at learning mm. and What that means is that if we go through any experience of rejection, bullying is a big one, isolation for a temporary period of time, it can really leave an imprint on us, right? Because that's a form of learning. Your brain is like, let me prepare for this happening again. You know, I know what to do and, and all of those things. So I think sometimes we think we get over things from our past, right? And we just move on from them. But it's actually you know, more typical for them to kind of stick with us because our brain is trying to kind of learn from them and for us to continue to face them or to continue to see them in the future as we move forward in our relationships. And it do, again, it doesn't have to be something huge. It could be like a breakup that was really hard can shape your experiences of grief moving forward or an experience of like, for example, social anxiety is related to your experiences in adolescence. And then you're having social anxiety later in life or your experiences of loneliness as a child it predict your experiences of loneliness in adulthood. And so... There's this way that it gets, I mean, I don't want to be bleak about it because I certainly think there's ways to get off the trajectory and to heal from these things and to instead experience growth from these things. But at the same time, I think people that feel like, oh, I'm still struggling with this thing from my past. I just want to say like, oh, that's also pretty normal because we're humans and we're really sensitive to how we're coming off socially. And it's a way for us to to survive.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about some of these things. You've got six proven practices for making friends. Can you walk us through them?
2: Of course. Yeah. So these six proven practices, I read all of the research on, not all of it, but a lot Mm -hmm. of it. I can't say it was completely exhaustive, but yeah, a ton of research on what predicted who made friends and who didn't. And I came up with these six practices. These people that embrace these six practices were just more likely to make and keep friends. And so they are taking initiative, vulnerability, authenticity, showing affection toward other people, being authentic and harmonizing with anger, which is learning how to work through conflict well.
1: Mhm. All right. Well, thinking through these six practices, could you expand on them and share a particular action that is is really fruitful within each of the practices?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, initiative me, I think one of the biggest takeaways there is that friendship doesn't happen organically in adulthood. And people that think it does are lonelier over time, whereas people that see it as taking effort are less lonely. And so the takeaway here is that if you want to make friends, you are going to have to take initiative and not be passive, which just looks like, hey, it was so great to meet you. Like, I'd love to connect further. Could we exchange contact information? Authenticity, I define in a kind of complex way, which is like who we are without our defense mechanisms, right? So our defense mechanisms can really hurt our relationship. Let me define that further, right? So let's say my friend's kid got into an Ivy League school. My kid didn't. I feel jealous, but I want a defense mechanism will defend me against that feeling, feeling that feeling. So instead of me noticing or acknowledging that jealousy, I say to my friend, well, Cornell isn't really the best Ivy League anyway. <laughs> yeah, and so we use these defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from certain feelings at the cost of our relationship. So- understand, I guess the takeaway in authenticity is that what is raw is not authentic, which means the things that you say automatically are often defense mechanisms. They're not authentic. They're actually obscuring your authentic feeling. And so it can take a while, a pause to actually understand what you authentically feel if your brain is so quick to try to protect yourself from that feeling.
1: And now, well, now I'm curious at this Cornell example, what's the best way to engage with that person? You don't, you are jealous.
2: Yeah, you are jealous.
1: And so the best practice is not to to trash Cornell. Ever heard of it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the best move?
2: The goal of authenticity is to be intentional and not reactive. Okay. So intentionality means that you are not letting that feeling control how you act and behave. And you can make a decision as to how you're acting based off of your values, based off of the needs of the other person, based off of the larger circumstances, right? It's like you're choosing, you're not being hijacked. Mm, okay. So for some people, if the jealousy is really strong and they can't get over it, they can say, I really want to be happy for your kid, but I'm just struggling because my kid has struggled to, to get into these schools. So if I'm not, it's not coming up as, as happy as I would really love to, that's just what's going on internally with me. For other people, they might think, well, it's more important for me to center my friend and her experience with our kid right now. So even though I'm going to get in touch with the part of me that is happy for them and say, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm really happy for you. Like, congratulations. That's really cool. It's not about a particular response, but mm-hmm. it's just about choosing something intentionally that actually reflects you and your values rather than being raw and doing something reactively because there's a feeling that's really uncomfortable that you're trying to escape.
1: You understood. That's good. That's good. There can be, and so authenticity, it's interesting because the the way some people read that word or hear that word, you might be led to, you must disclose (laughs) that you feel jealous, but rather authenticity can have, it sounds like many, many shapes or, or flavors here.
2: Exactly. Right. Because like people that are authentic are actually you think, oh, if you're authentic, you're only going to think about yourself and your own needs. But people that are more authentic are actually more likely to consider other people's needs because inauthenticity is psychologically exhausting. So you don't have the resources to think about other Mm. people. So when you're able to just like be like, oh, this is what I feel. I understand what I feel. And you clear yourself out psychologically so you can choose and make an intentional choice. Whereas if you're always trying to suppress that underlying feeling, it takes a toll on you and you end up relying on some of those defense mechanisms, which is like you're kind of tired. So you're just going into that reactive mode.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's How about vulnerability.
2: Yeah. So vulnerability, I think the takeaway from that chapter is as social creatures, we are not strong alone. We are strong through receiving other people's love and validation and then internalizing it. So I interviewed Dr. Michael Slepian, who studies secrets. And I found one of his studies that basically looked at who is most resilient regarding the weight of their secrets, They're least impacted by the secrets. And he kind of found that it was these people that had told their secrets to someone and received this validating response who were then best able to cope internally with their secrets. And so his research basically suggesting that We become strong through being vulnerable with people and then internalizing their love. And that's what attachment theory is, right? These securely attached people who are good at relationships and their mental health is better, so much better, and they're living longer, they had healthy relationships and they internalized them. And so vulnerability is key for our mental health and well-being, but will also deepen our relationships because we're social creatures, whatever we do to better our relationships often also improves our overall health and well-being. So that's why we should lean into being vulnerable.
1: Okay. And then sharing our secrets more often, it sounds like.
2: Yeah. With people that are trustworthy, of Mm -hmm. course, but yes.
1: Okay. And then anger.
2: So the takeaway with anger is that often when it comes to friendship, we suppress conflict and we think that that's a good way to deal with things. And What ends up happening is that we actually just withdraw. We don't end up dealing with it. We don't end up getting over it. And so there's research that finds that open empathic conflict is actually linked to deeper intimacy. And if you're avoiding conflict, you also might be avoiding a form of intimacy within your friendships. So the takeaway of that chapter is if you have issues within your friendships, like address them, (laughs) don't attack your friend. And that that chapter really goes into how to address them because it's not just bringing up the conflict that matters it's bringing it up in a loving way but if you have a problem and it's causing you to withdraw it's a way better option to bring it up with your friends it might increase your intimacy with that friendship and i think sometimes we withdraw because we're like well if i bring this up are they gonna abandon me or get mad at me but then you end up withdrawing and it's kind of guaranteed that the friendship is going to end rather than you at least had a chance if you were able to bring it up with them
1: that is good and so can we hear the the crash course and in, in how to bring things up? Well,
2: yeah, so it starts with framing, which is this idea that we want to make sure that we are introducing the conversation and grounding it as an act of love and care for the other person. So like, hey, I just wanted to make sure I want to bring this up because I love you and I don't want anything to get between us because you're so important to me. It's using I statements. I felt hurt when this happened. Not saying you're a bad friend. Ask perspective taking. You know, I was wondering what might have been going on for you at that time. And asking for what we want in the future. You know, in the future, if the situation comes up, like maybe we can handle it like this. What do you think about it? So it's, it's collaborative. It's an act of reconciliation rather than combat.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And then offering generosity. What do you recommend here?
2: So I recommend being generous freely, it does build friendships, until you feel like it's exhausting you and it's taking a toll on you. And at that point, you need to practice something called mutuality, which is different from reciprocity, right? Reciprocity is like, I called you, now you call me. But mutuality is, I think about both of our experiences, And both of our priorities and both of our capacities to determine the appropriate amount of generosity to give in a certain moment. So what does that mean, practically speaking? It means that, for example, like if your friend calls you in a time of need, let's say they find out their their kid is self-harming or something, it might feel like I'm so tired, I want to set a boundary. But if you take a look at mutuality and you take a step back and you're like, My friend's kid's self-harming and I'm tired. What is the bigger priority in this moment? Then you might want to get on the phone, even if you're tired. And so it's kind of a different way to think about boundaries, to think about boundaries as more of a mutual act for the closest relationships in your life, rather than boundaries as just an act of Mm self-protection.
1: Okay, cool. And we say generosity, what are the different ways that can be expressed?
2: Well, I really like when we express generosity that reflects our general strengths and talents because I think it feels even better that way. So what are you good at? Whether it's art, you can make art for your friends, cooking, baking, doing that for your friends, planning and organizing. You can organize a special day for your friends. Looking up information, I did a presentation on finances for my friends because I just was really into like finance podcasts for a while. So think about what you enjoy doing anyway and find a way to give it to the people in your life.
1: All right. And then how about giving affection?
2: Yeah. So affection. There's this study that looked uh, at Friendship Paris for 12 weeks to determine what's going to predict who stays friends by week 12. And one of the most strongest things was how much affection they shared with one another. There's this theory called risk regulation theory, which is basically the idea that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to get rejected. So if you want people to invest in you, you have to basically indicate to them that they won't be rejected. And so one of the ways that you do that is that you express affection. You tell people I value you. I'm so happy to see you. You greet them warmly when they arrive. You tell them that this was something really meaningful that you said that I continue to think about. Like all what affection does is it creates safety so people feel more comfortable investing in a relationship with you.
1: hmm Okay. Well, that's a nice six practices there. I'd love it, Marissa. Do you have any any fun stories or unique ways that folks have done some of the stuff that really sticks with you?
2: I do. So in my affection chapter, I interviewed a friendship pair that was very close. Like they proposed to each other as best friends and they would cuddle with each other. And I talk in that chapter about the complexities of romantic love that Queer communities, there's this book, Ace, about asexuality, have pushed us to differentiate between romantic and sexual attraction. That romance is like, I'm passionate about you. I'm thrilled by you. I yearn for your company. It's a sense of excitement about someone. But sexual attraction is I want to have sex with you. And those two things are distinct. And that it's actually pretty normal for us to have romantic attraction to friends. And it's been normal throughout history because like, Early 1800s and before, like, people were getting married to people for practical reasons, because you're going to give my family resources. Mm -hmm. And the genders were considered so distinct that the idea was you can only really connect intimately to your friends who are the same gender as you. So friends were holding hands and writing their names on trees and writing these deep love letters to each other. And that was all normal. And I think we need to normalize that people have romantic feelings for their friends, which I'm just defining as being really passionate and thrilled by your friend and very excited. Like, I don't know, a fire, having a fire for your friend. You know, people say, my friend is my soulmate, all these different things. And that that is part of friendship. And that more generally, I think a lot of what we consider normal in romantic relationships could also apply to friendship. There's no reason why not. Hmm,
1: yeah, intriguing. The distinction between romance and sexuality and yeah, that's a brain expander. Okay. And so then cuddling, writing names and trees, <laughs> what else?
2: Yeah, writing love letters with each other, sharing the same bed, people used to go bring their friends on their honeymoons, going on special dates together, like all of these things that we now consider more typical in our romantic relationships. Like honestly, for me, My goal is to equalize the value I place on a romantic partner and the value I place on my closest friendships. And because I understand that the ways that I've been grown up and probably most of us have grown up is that romantic love kind of has this monopoly on love where the most loving acts we consider only appropriate for a romantic partner and don't do with our friends, even though they could really benefit our friendships and make people feel closer to us and loved and cared for. So this came up for me when I was, I had a friend coming back from the airport from a trip to the airport at like 12:30 a.m. and I hate staying up late <laughs> so I was faced with the question this was a friend that I'm close to and I would love to to get closer to but I was faced with the question of should I offer to pick her up from the airport and I literally asked myself knowing that romantic love has such a monopoly on love and we almost have to access our concept of romantic love to access what deep love looks like for a person, that I asked myself, would I do this for a romantic partner? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Like I would stay up late and pick up my romantic partner from the airport to make them feel taken care of. So after I realized that, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this for my friend. Like I'm going to pick her up at 1230. And yeah, it really benefited our friendship. From then on, she saw how intentional I was about valuing her. And then she like bought me a plant after all my plants died and, you know, I wasn't drinking and she brought non-alcoholic cocktails and, you know, it's just created this positive upward cycle of closeness and care for each other.
1: That's very beautiful. And I guess I'm thinking about if, if you watch some like history channel documentaries, it seems like, and some historians believe that they were gay lovers. Well, now yeah. you got me wondering, it's like, Well, are they thinking that because they're imposing our modern viewpoint associated (laughs) with with sexuality being linked to romance and really close friendships onto a different century where that was not the case?
2: Possibly. I mean, I I don't want to understate that also there was this erasure, intentional erasure happening of LGB relationships at the time. and, And that was also happening. But I think we can We can give ourselves room for both things, which is that, Mm -hmm. yes, these gay relationships were erased from history, but also a lot of these relationships could also have been non-sexual and just very intimate with each other. Like for me, there's this photographer who basically had pictures from around those times when friends were allowed to be more intimate. And I just remember seeing men go to get take photographs together with their best friend with their arms around them, or like men in a football team laying in each other's arms. And- Mm -hmm. And that's like, it's public. It's like a football team. So I don't think it's something that's happening behind closed doors. And people are not ashamed of it either. And so, you know, when you look back at those pictures, you see how, yeah, people were just a lot more comfortable with intimacy within friendships back then.
1: Mm Mm-hmm, intriguing. Well, Marissa, tell me anything else you wanna make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: I guess one of my big tips for people making friends is to assume that people like you. Mm -hmm. The reason that I share this is because there's research on something called the acceptance prophecy, which finds that when people are told by researchers that, you know, your personality profile indicates that you will go into this group and be accepted, and that's a total lie, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because making that assumption makes people warmer, it makes them friendlier, whereas when we assume we'll be rejected, we actually reject people. We become cold. We become withdrawn. We are giving signals to other people that we're rejecting them, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they reject us back. And so, and we also learned about the liking gap, which is people like us more than we think. So try to remember to assume people like you.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: There's a bell hooks book all about love. And I actually think she she quoted this from someone else, but you can find it in the book. And she describes love, and I'm butchering this probably, but love is helping someone express their inner truth or the essence of who they are in the ways that they're living. That an act of love is fundamentally helping people live a more deeply authentic life.
1: Mm-hmm. And a favorite study or experiment, or bit of research?
2: Research finds that when we predict the impact of expressing affirmation toward other people we think it's going to come off as more awkward than it actually does and we underestimate Mm. how good it makes people feel so just don't undervalue the impact of your kindness and your love toward other people
1: all right and a favorite book
2: there's this really good book called attached which is on attachment theory for romantic relationships
1: Mm -hmm. and a favorite tool something you use to be awesome at your job
2: i really do use like connection skills, I guess, like as a teacher, like I try to say hi to my students. I try to like not tell them they're wrong, but maybe say like, what would someone add to that? I try to create a safe environment where people feel comfortable engaging and affirm my students every day at the end of class, we have an appreciation hat where you share something that that stuck out to you that someone else shared and you give them a little bit of a gift. So I believe that Good learning happens on the backbone of connectedness. And so I'm trying to be intentional about that.
1: All right. And a favorite habit?
2: Exercise. I love exercising. (laughs) Like five days a week, I started going back to the gym and it just makes me feel so good physically and mentally. All right.
1: And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote you often on it.
2: Friendship doesn't happen organically. People like you more than you think. So assume people like you.
1: All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: point them to my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And my website, drmarisagfranco.com has a quiz to assess your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and gives you some suggestions on how you can improve. And you can also reach out there for any speaking engagements on connection and belonging within the workplace or outside of it.
1: All right. And do you have any key challenges or calls to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah. So one thing that you can do if you want to make friends at work is, and I guess this is if you are hybrid or in person, is something called repotting, which means varying the settings in which you interact, which tends to deepen your relationship. So if you have a work friend that you kind of like, try to invite them to do something outside of work, because that's going to bring up different sides of them and different sides of you and allow there to be a transition from work friend to real friend. So if any of you changes jobs, you'll have this precedent of hanging out outside of the workplace and your relationship will be more sustainable.
1: Beautiful. Well, Marissa, this has been a treat. I wish you much fun and many good friendships.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I love Marissa's
1: perspective associated with Considering investing in your really close, special friendships the same way you would in a romantic partner, and say, hmm, is that a thing I would do for my romantic partner? Well, then maybe that is a thing I ought to do for this close relationship that really matters to me. And the richness that can come from relationships when that kind of investment is placed and then reciprocated and grows over time, it's a beautiful thing as well as Marissa's perspective on loneliness and how when we're feeling it, it can really perpetuate itself, as in we may underestimate the likelihood of having a good time when we go see some peeps. Great stuff from Marissa. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP840. Hope to catch you next time,
0: and peace.